In Psalm chapter 10, David is asking a question there in the first verse. And I, I think for many of us, we, we can relate to this psalm, uh, especially to the question that, that David is asking. He, he's asking, why does it feel like you're so far away, God? In other words, why, why does it feel like I'm all alone? Why does it feel like you, you don't care about me? That, that you don't protect me? Why, Lord? Why, why, why am I alone? And loneliness is something that I think, if we're honest, each and every one of us experience. And loneliness doesn't mean you're all by yourself. You can be lonely in a crowd. You, you can be lonely sitting in this room this morning. We, we've all had that feeling of being alone. And, and the psalmist this morning is addressing that feeling, and, and he's surveying around, and he's looking at his world, and he's trying to make sense of it. He's trying to, to process everything that is going on so that he can understand it. And again, I think this is common whenever you're alone, right? That, that's when you begin to ponder the universe. You, you begin to ponder the bigger questions, right? Because you feel as though you are all alone. And so David is going to walk us through what it looks like as believers when we find ourselves in that place of feeling all alone. How, how should we respond as Christians? And I hope that, that you will leave here encouraged, just as the psalmist leaves this psalm encouraged about the state of his loneliness in life. So as our custom, we're going to read through the psalm together as a church. We're going to throw it up on the screen. And if you would, read along with me. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor he seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see 
For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commit himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, your heart, the desires of the afflicted, you will strengthen their heart, you will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Amen. So as we can see in this first verse, in verse 1, the psalmist is, is asking, he's crying out to God. And this is a consistent theme that we have seen throughout the Psalms, this, this picture of a person crying out to God. This, this isn't a, a passionless prayer. This isn't a reverent, holy, solemn, emotionless, just, God, where are you? No, no, this is, this is crying out in desperation. His, his heart wants to know, Lord, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And this is one of those psalms where we have no historical context. We have no clues in the titles. We have no uh, instances within the text that give us any specific point in history to go back to. And I'm thankful for that. And you should be too. Here's why. Because this makes this psalm timeless. This is a question that every generation asks, that every person in the world asks this question that is being asked here in Psalm 10. God, where are you? God, where are you? He asked this question, we see in verses 2 through 11, as he surveys the state of his world. So we've got the, the question is verse 1. Then the second section of the psalm is, is him surveying the state of the world that he is living in. And again, I would argue that this section is just as timeless as the first verse. That, that when the psalmist is surveying the world as he knows it, that the same thing could be said. Today of our world. As he surveys his world that he lives in, notice what he sees. Notice how he describes his world. He uses two concepts to describe the oppressive forces in his world arrogant and aggressive. Those two concepts sum up what he's saying in this section as he surveys his world and he's, he looks out and he's, he's noticing what's happening. He's noticing what's happening in commerce when he's noticing what's happening even in the temple. What he notices is there are these arrogant and aggressive oppressors. And he wants us to see these two concepts this morning, starting in verse 2 with arrogance. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. 
that the havoc that they are wreaking on the poor comes from their own self-importance. They think they deserve it. They deserve to take advantage of these poor people because they're smarter than them. They work harder than them. I deserve this, right? There's, there's a puffed up sense of pride and arrogance in their heart that has gotten them to this place where they think, I deserve this so I can wreak all this havoc on the poor. It doesn't matter because I deserve it. See, the oppressor forgets that both the rich and the poor were both created by God. This is what they forget. And maybe some of you have forgot that this morning. Let, let me help remind you of that. None of you chose the family that you would be born into. None of you chose the country that you would be born into. None of you chose the mental aptitude you would have. And none of you chose the opportunities that all of those things that you did not choose afforded you. All of that is in God's hands, right? That's outside of our hands. God is the one who creates both the rich and the poor. We know that from God's own word, Proverbs 22.2. The rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The psalmist reminds us of what the wicked has forgotten. You see, the psalmist is looking around, and what he is seeing are the self-made men of his generation. Now, even, even by that very term, self-made, they are denying God and worshiping themselves instead. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. They're not worshiping God anymore. They're forgetting God. They're worshiping themselves. Why? Because I'm smarter. Because I deserve it. Because I'm arrogant and prideful. They worship their right choices, and they look down on all those who didn't make the same right choices that they made. Those idiots deserve to have their money taken. Because they didn't make the choices that I made. If they would have just made the choices I made, they'd be in the same place that I'm at. Totally forgetting all the advantages that were bestowed upon them. And thinking that it was all about them and what they had done. And the choices that they had made. And then he says this weird thing about them boasting in verse 3. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. That's a weird way of saying that. But what he's saying there is that the wicked are proud of their desires. They're proud of them. They are proud of the greed that has got them to the top of the pile. They brag about it to their friends. It's not just enough for them to be happy to take the poor's money. they got to brag about it too. And let me tell you how I did it. Nowadays, fast forward, let me sell you a YouTube seminar on how you can do it too. 
They boast in their evil desires. Because the wicked, they're never content with what they have. When what you're striving for is not God, you will never have enough of it. When you're, when you're striving after God, you can never have all of it. By its very nature, He is infinite. We are not. We are finite. You, you do realize when you get to the new heaven and the new earth, you're still going to be learning things a million years from now about God. Because He's infinite. But when you set your mind and you set your heart on desires less than God... Well, then it's never enough. You, you've always got to have more. That, that greed is fueling that desire, that striving for more. You're never satisfied. And this, this desire for more, it's this pursuit for more that the wicked then begin crushing the poor and taking advantage of them. You see, there's absolutely nothing wrong with owning a business and running a business. Nothing. But when greed kicks in and you start taking advantage of your employees or you start taking advantage of your customers, right? That desire for more begins to crush the poor. Now, there's one thing in verse 3 that should stand out to us. Something that in many ways should shock us. Although sadly, because I, I think this psalm is timeless, it, it doesn't shock me. These wicked men and women renounce God by using his personal name. Now, you, you might be like, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the psalmist is implying that these wicked men are coming from within Israel. This, this psalm isn't talking about people who are outside of the camp. They're talking about people who are inside of the camp, right? The, these wicked oppressors are Israelites that know God, that go to the temple, they are at least aware of who he is. Even if they are not devout, they understand who he is and know his personal name for them. These are the people that are supposed to be the people of God, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, right? Like that, That's who these people are that David is referring to in this psalm. That's who the wicked are. But instead of being the people of God, their love for money and possessions have overtaken their love for God. Which leads them, as this psalm shows us, to ultimately deny God. And, and I can tell you, as a person who has had the benefit of traveling to Israel, you will not meet more atheists per capita than when you go to Israel. They do not, for the most part, believe in a God, period. Some of the most hard-hearted people I have ever seen. But they will happily sell you a plate to commemorate the place where the three wise men hitched their camels. How could they even know that? 
but, but hey, can I, can I sell you a plate? I got a commemorative plate here. I would love to sell it to you. Hard-hearted people that are just about this. That's what happens when we love money and we love possessions is ultimately we end up denying God. Now, again, I, I just want to be clear here. Having money and having possessions doesn't mean you will end up this way. But loving those possessions and money more than God means you will end up here. And the reality is what he's describing here is just as true for us today. Think about all the people who grew up in Christianity and have walked away. So many people, Christianity is... It made them famous. It made them widely known. And now they're just living for themselves. Doing what they want. But it doesn't just have to be on that national stage. It, it can also be on the local stage. I'm sure you know people like that. That had the benefit of growing up in the house of God. That had the benefit of, of knowing who God was and, and the gospel. And yet chose to walk away. And live for themselves. Guys, this morning, instead of boasting in our desires like the wicked, we should be boasting in the Lord. As 1 Corinthians tells us. Now, because we are nowhere near as patient as God, what do we want God to do when we see this kind of wickedness and evil? Wipe them out. Strike them down, right? Especially when they're sinning against us. I mean, post-haste, we, we need this done now, right? But the reality is, and the, and the psalmist is, is aware of this, the reality is that's not the case. That's not how God works. And that frustrates some of you. Some of you... You may be here this morning and you still haven't given your life over to Christ because you can't fathom and understand all the injustices in the world and think that there is a good and loving God. Because you, like the psalmist, you look at people who crush the poor and they focus on making money. What normally happens? When a person's focus is solely on making money, oftentimes... They accumulate lots of money. That's what happens because that's their focus. That's their singular goal in life. The trouble is, though, as they continue to accumulate all that money, their arrogance also grows. I'm sure you've seen that. I think about when I, when I think about the arrogance, um, me and Amber have had the good fortune of going on a cruise one time in our life. And when we went, we didn't know this, but half of the cruise was from India. And I was, I mean, I'm not going to lie, I was excited because like one whole dining area was going to be just Indian food, like authentic Indian food. I was like, this is going to be fun, right? Well, this was a group of people from India who were on a six-month vacation. And one week out of their six-month vacation was going to be on a cruise, right? So as you can imagine, this is the top 
1% of the 1% of the 1% of the 1% who's taken a six-month vacation from India, right? You guys, <laughs> they would, they didn't even acknowledge my presence. Now, I'm not a small person, <laughs> mind you, right? But like, it was like I didn't even exist. I, I was not on their level. Therefore, when I'm standing in line at the, at the buffet to get some food, they just walked right in front of me, grabbed the plate, and just kept going. And, and so when I, when I think about like, the arrogance that grows with wealth, that, that's, that's the picture. I, I don't know what the picture is in your mind, but that's the picture I have in my mind. It's these people who, who just acted like I didn't even exist in the world. And they had the right to just go ahead of me, do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted without saying I'm sorry, without saying anything. Because they were better than I was. And that's what happens as you accumulate more and more wealth. You, you can get, when, when you are focused on the wealth, again, it's, it's not about the money, but it's the love of money. The Bible's very clear about that. But as, as you grow in that love of money, your arrogance grows, and you begin to convince yourself that you're the reason that all this has happened. That you're the one that's made all of this possible. Look at verse 6. You get to this place. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. How arrogant is that? You finite human being that's not going to make it through one generation. But, but, they convince themselves, their, their success begins to blind them to the fact that God will ultimately judge them for their actions. Their, their arrogance and their wealth, they, they begin to make them think that they are blessed by God because look at all this stuff I have. I must be blessed. I must be doing it right because I have all this stuff. And they forget that the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away, as Psalm 1 says. And in verse 6, they also convince themselves that they can set up their successive generations for future success. Right? It's like the decisions that I'm going to make are going to ensure that, that all of my future generations are going to be successful. And that they're not going to meet adversity. I shall not be moved. All generations. Now, don't, he, don't again, don't mishear me. It is good and it is godly to save money for future generations. Okay? The Bible encourages us, us to do that as believers. The Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children's but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous in psalm 112 2 it says the generation of the upright will be blessed not the wicked right the, the wicked's money will be taken from them and given to god's people so this is this is the first characteristic we see in the psalm of the wicked, as he surveys 
the world, there is just an arrogance to them that, that just thinks that, man, we, I've got it so together that my decisions are going to set up my family in, it just, just into the future, just never going to stop. That's arrogant. I mean, that, that's more than even just like, I'm doing good and I'm going to have a good life. That, that's, that's some serious arrogance, right? But they're not just arrogant. They're also, and this is the second characteristic that as David surveys his world, that he sees. They are aggressive. Notice in verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Now, the aggression that is seen most commonly is in our words, whether written or spoken. Listen, listen to what C.S. Lewis says when he is commenting on the Psalms. I think that when I began to read it, these surprised me a little. I had half expected that in a simpler and more violent age, when more evil was done with the knife, the big stick, and the firebrand, less would be done by talk. But in reality, the psalmist mentioned hardly any kind of evil more often than this one, which the most civilized societies share. It is all over the psalms. One almost hears the incessant whispering, tattling, lying, scolding, flattery, and circulation of rumors. No historical readjustments are here required. We are in the world we know. When you read through the Psalms and it talks about the aggressive nature of the wicked, there's a correlation to with what they are saying. Right? We, we think of aggressive as being violent, and that's true, don't get me wrong, there, there is a violence to them. But more times than not, it's their words, it's what they're saying. It's how they're saying it, and it's what they're talking about. And of course, as Christians, we know this because of passages like James 3.6, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, the tongue is is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. We, we understand, we should understand as Christians, the power that our tongue wields in being aggressive. And the wicked here are described as being smart, and they, they like to ambush the unsuspecting. Right? This, this is one of the reasons why they like to go after the poor. Because they're the, they're the unsuspecting ones that they can lie in wait and catch by surprise. Because oftentimes they're so busy trying to survive, they're not thinking two and three steps ahead. They're just trying to get through their day. And it's so much easier for the rich to come in and pick their pockets of tomorrow's money or the next day's money. It's one of the reasons why you, you see so many people fall into uh, the addiction of gambling because there's this idea, well, I'll, I'll, I'll hit it rich tomorrow. I just got to keep putting money in the machine. And ultimately, I'll get it. See, a wise person, typically a richer person, they're thinking ahead. They're thinking, you know, I, I, got, I got a mortgage to pay. Like, I got to save some of this money 
So I, I can't gamble this money because that's my mortgage. But that's not always what a poor person is thinking. They're thinking, man, if I, if I, just, if I take my mortgage money and I put it in this machine, maybe I'll get enough to pay my mortgage for 10 months. Of course, it never happens. They like to ambush the unsuspected, unsuspecting. They don't care about the people they entrap. They only want to separate them from their money. The, the oppressor's oppressing because he thinks, as we see in the psalm, that no one's going to call him into account. God doesn't see. Right? That, that's what they convince themselves in the heart. They convince themselves that there is no God, so therefore there's no judgment. So I might as well take all I can take. I might as well get all I can get. And our minds often jump to people that set up Ponzi schemes like Bernie Madoff and defraud unsuspecting seniors of their pensions. Right? We, again, we, like, we, we think about big things like that. But the reality is that this happens every day in our world. Where I see it happening the most is with bloggers and podcasters. who are being aggressive with their tongues, right, and their speech or their writings. And what they do is, is they try to question all of these people's character in hopes that people will fall for their faulty logic, their little straw man that they create and then tear down. And then, of course, they're always selling a book, right? Or, or they're selling some video series that you need to buy, where, where supposedly you're going to get all the other information that they don't tease you with in the blog and in the, song, in, in the podcast, right? And so it's, it's this bait and switch. It's like, here, let me make all these accusations about all these people or all these situations and all these things going on. Now give, give me your money to be, the, be a paid member, and I'll give you the inside scoop. Or buy my book, and you'll learn all the stuff that you need to learn until I come out with my next book. And even if they don't give the hard-earned money that they have to this person, and they don't buy their book or series of lectures or whatever it is, they still take those half-truths that they've heard on those blogs or those podcasts and they go and spread it to every other person that they know. Becoming the best marketer for that person. Remember, so much damage is done by the tongue. And just a word of warning, please, guys, be wary of people in your life that have nothing but negative things to say about other people. That goes for your personal interactions, but also in the, the media you consume, whether it's television, blogs, podcasts, whatever. What, whatever new thing is going to come out next. If all they're doing is tearing people down and talking about how they're doing it wrong, that should be a big, big, big red light to you and a warning light to proceed with caution. 
And, and listen, that's not just true in the investment world and in the business. It's, it's true in the church world. We, we have a rash of discernment bloggers that do nothing but create false teachers to talk about. And I say create because they don't ever go and talk to the false teacher that they're claiming is false. They just create them based on words and clips and, and, and construct this little position and say, okay, this person's bad. Now let me tear them down. Instead of doing what Christians are called to do, which is pick up the phone. Hop on a plane. Hop in a car. Go sit down and talk with them. Sadly, so many times, the, these people... That are, that are claiming to be helping people with false teachers, they themselves aren't even in church anymore. Because they can't find a church without a false teacher. And so they just have their online community. That's their church. Be careful, guys. Be careful. I, I love, you know me, I love technology. I love the fact that you can sit down this afternoon and learn any subject you want to learn for free. I love that about the internet. But there also are dangers that come with it too. You see, these, these people, they have misjudged God's silence. So they feel that they need to speak out and shine a light in every place that the church is getting it wrong. Because God's being silent. So somebody's got to say something. Somebody's got to stand up. Somebody's got to talk about this. But listen, God is not forgetful or too busy causing him to be silent. God is silent because he is patient and kind with sinners. God is giving them every opportunity to confess and repent of their sin. And earlier I said, maybe some of you are sitting in here and you struggle with believing in God because of all the injustice in the world. Let me remind you, you are the biggest injustice you know. So you should be very thankful that he is patient and kind and doesn't instantly retaliate for sin. Otherwise, I would have no one to preach to. And honestly, there would be no preacher. But God is loving and patient and kind. And he gives us every possible opportunity to confess and repent. Paul speaks of this reality in Romans 2, 4 through 5. God's kindness and forbearance and patience is meant to lead us to repentance. In other words, Paul is saying, don't presume on these things. But understand, these things are here to bring us to a place of repentance. Not a place of arrogance and aggressiveness, but repentance. But the wicked don't see that. And just because God doesn't immediately punish a sinner for his sin, it doesn't, I don't want you to leave here this morning thinking that God doesn't care. No, he he is patient and he offers us every opportunity to turn from our sin because he does care. Don't, don't be like the wicked and mistake God's patience 
for abandonment. Right? That's where the psalmist started out. God, where, where are you? Why, why do you hide yourself? I'm all alone here. The wicked take that and they run a direction that says, there is no God. I can do whatever I want. And they become arrogant and aggressive. But as, as believers, we are to understand that God's silence is God's patience with us. And that should lead us to be like Him, which is kind and patient. As you, as you think about your life, as you think about your words, as, as you think about the relationships that you were involved in, is it marked more by arrogance and aggressiveness and again, aggressiveness is the tongue as much as it is physical violence. Are you tearing people down without any solid evidence, just your hunch and a feeling? Or are you being kind and patient? Finally, in verses 12 through 15, not finally, almost finally, in verses 12 through 15, David is, is calling God to action, right? So, so if we're not to be arrogant and aggressive, what should we do? We should pray. We, we should be calling God to action, and that's exactly what we see in, in these verses. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, Right? I don't, I don't know if you've watched old movies from this time period, but the king would often sit on a hill, right? He didn't have a megaphone. He didn't have text messaging, right? What would he do? Attack. That's, that's what David's asking for here, right? Raise up your arm. Call in the army of the angels. Let's, let's do this. He's crying out to God, man, how much healthier would we be? How much healthier would our churches be if we prayed first for God to intervene rather than trying to intervene ourselves and then asking God to bless our efforts to intervene? You may find that through prayer, God shows you that He is already intervening. He is already working. And we also may find out in prayer that God wants us to be a part of His solution. And that God does want us to play a role. A good example of that is somebody like William Wilberforce. In 1785, he became a Christian. And that began to radically transform his life. It, it began to change the way he saw the world. His habits changed. His life changed. He witnessed the horrors of the slave trade. And God used Wilberforce to speak against this injustice. In 1789, he made his first speech to Congress. Four years after becoming, or Parliament, excuse me. My American brain kicked in there for a second. Right? Four years after becoming a Christian, he's standing in front of Parliament, the head of government, saying, listen, we got to stop this. 
Two years later, he joined the society that would ultimately end slavery. It took 18 years, but the slave trade of 1807 outlawed the sale and transportation of slaves within the British Empire. It would take almost another 30 years for slavery itself to be abolished in the British Empire in 1834. And Wilberforce died in 1833. But he died three months before finding out that the legislation was sure to pass next year. He died knowing that God had interceded, that God had heard his prayer. In total, he worked 44 years to end the injustice of slavery in the British Empire. God may be calling you to be a part of the solution. But again, the order is important. Don't run out and try to fix it and then ask God to bless your efforts. Go to God first. Ask God first to intervene. And and in that prayer, again, you, you you may understand from God that I'm already working. Just calm down. Or... You may be led to be a part of that work, but go to him first. Don't go running out and doing something and, you know, hey, God, please bless what I'm doing. The order matters. Psalm 13 and 14, the psalmist reminds himself of the truth that God does see. All throughout the Psalms, one of the things I hope you see a pattern developing, that what the psalmist does is he reminds himself of the attributes of God. He reminds himself of the character of God. He reminds himself of who God is. And I want to encourage you, you you may be here this morning, and one of the reasons why you struggle is you don't know the attributes of God. You, You don't know the character of God. You don't know who God says he is in his word. And I would encourage you, those are valuable studies. And if if that's something you've never done, come and see me. I've got plenty of resources that I can help you walk through the character of God, the attributes of God. We did a whole series on some of those a couple of years ago. Because this is what you have to remind yourself of. You've got to remind yourself that God does see. Because the wicked, you can almost be convinced like the wicked into thinking that God doesn't see. But that's not the truth. The truth is that God does see. And he reminds himself. And this becomes a turning point in this psalm. God consistently cares for the widows and the orphans throughout the narrative of Scripture. This is a theme that you can see traced from the beginning to the end of the Bible. God caring for the helpless. God caring for those who can't help themselves. And calling his people to help the helpless and those who can't help themselves. That's a constant theme, and and David's reminding himself of this. And with that truth freshly in his mind, he calls on God to break the arm of the wicked. Right? And this is kind of symbolic language here of, of, of breaking their power. Stop them in their tracks, in other words. And don't get me wrong, again, if you study the Old Testament, 
It's not just symbolic sometimes. <laughs> so sometimes he has dogs eat the people and, you know, that, that's, that's the end of them, right? There, there is violence too. But he ends this psalm in verses 16 through 18 with this new confidence that he has in the character of God. This, this new confidence that God does see. That the, the reality is we don't know if the psalmist ever saw his prayer answered. Right? Wilberforce knew the legislation would be enacted, but he never lived in a time in which slavery was outlawed. He, he never physically got to see that himself. And, and again, we, we don't know the exact details of the psalm, so we're never going to know until we get to heaven, maybe. But we, we're never going to know this life, whether the, the, the actual prayer that he's praying here was answered or not. But it doesn't matter because he's resting in the fact that God sees. And he knows that God judges. And we are constantly reminded in this life that God's timing is not our timing. And, and sadly, some of you here, you've experienced injustice, but you may never see the people pay for this side of eternity. It just may never happen. But like the psalmist, we know that God defends his people and he stands for the cause of the weak. He stands against the arrogant and the proud and the aggressive. This morning, I pray that that encourages your faith. That, that even if times of trouble come, that, that we can have joy in knowing we serve a God who is patient and kind even to his enemies. Because the reality is we were all his enemies at some point in our lives. This morning, I hope you're grateful that he is kind and patient with his enemies like you and me. Again, this morning, I want you to examine your life. Which, which two words mark your life? Are you living more like the wicked? Are you more arrogant and aggressive? And, and again, that, that can be with your words, not just physically. Or are you kind and patient? Because if it's the latter, you're going to be able to endure injustice with a quiet confidence. Guys, I, I want to remind you of something this morning. It's so easy to forget in America. We are exiles. We do not belong here. This is not our country. This is not our world. We, we are foreigners from another land. We are going to experience injustice. The only way we're going to be able to endure it with quiet confidence is if we believe that God sees and that God stands with the weak. And not only that, not only will we 
be able to endure it and have this quiet confidence in the midst of injustice. But this confidence in God will allow us to take action and defend the weak, even in the midst of this injustice. And we can only do that when, like the psalmist, we rest in Him and not ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being present. Thank You for always seeing. Thank You for being kind. And Lord, most of all, thank You for being patient. Father, I pray that You would remind us of this truth this week. Lord, and it would change our interactions with people. It would, it would allow us to be kinder, patient, humble with those around us who, who may still be your enemies. Father, that it would, it would enable us to endure any injustice we experience with a quiet confidence knowing that you see, that you hear, and that ultimately you will act. Vengeance is yours, not ours. Help us to remember that this week. And Lord, for those that are here this morning that don't know you, and maybe they struggle with believing that there can be a good God when they look at all the injustice that they see in the world. God, I pray that this morning, at the very least, a seed would be planted in their hearts and they would begin to see that you are good because you are patient and because you are kind. And you do give sinners every opportunity to confess and repent of their sin. And Lord, that, that would lead them to confess and repent of their sin and turn to you and to your Son as their Savior. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.